In the Canadian justice system, animals' interests are rarely represented, but the lawyers at Animal Justice fight to give them a voice in court and the political system. This is the Pawn Order Podcast, and these are their stories. And welcome to episode 31 of the Pod and Order podcast. I'm happy to be joined finally at long last Peter by my co-host Peter Sankoff. It's his first week back after two episodes off and it's good to have you back on the show. Finally back, Camille. You make it sound like I was like abandoned the podcast forever. I it missed is, you though. I missed you too. It is very good to be back. I, and 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 I'm already looking forward. I'm already looking ahead to episode 32 because when we're talking about missing each other, episode 32 is one of those rare in-person live episodes. I'm already teasing for the next episode, Camille. Yeah, it's exciting. We're, we're actually going to be in Yellowknife for an event, which is going to be super cool because I've never been up north before, so I can't wait. And even better that we get to see it together and maybe find some northern lights. This is our first podcast in the north. Like We've done them in Ontario. We've done them in Alberta. We're going to the northwest. Ter- we're talking about our next episode, Camille. It's just, it's, it's incredible. We haven't even finished this one. Oh, yeah. But I'm... I'm very happy to be back. It has been uh, a long, long, uh, very busy April, but I'm really happy to be back at the podcast. Well, it's good to have you back, and I would love to hear all about your trip. So listeners might remember that Peter was off to Zambia, where he was coaching his moot team at the University of Alberta. I have to be honest, it's a really weird thing to say. Even when I say it, I still can't believe it. I'm like, well, where were you? I was in Zambia. Like I, you know, it's just such a weird thing to say. But yes, I was in Zambia. I was in Africa. And uh, it was an incredible trip. It was really uh, the trip of a lifetime. Uh, we were there for about a week. Getting there and getting back, let me say, was also the trip of a lifetime, but not in a good way. Like with 40 hours of travel. I kid you not. Oh my God. Um, yeah, the, I, the less said about the travel, the better. Um, but Zambia itself was absolutely magical. It was an incredible experience in terms of uh, just being in Africa. And it was my first time and getting a chance to see a little bit of Africa. And then, of course, what made it even more magical was I was there um, as a representative of the University of Alberta. And um, our team uh, had won the Gale Cup moot, and we we got to represent Canada. It was the first time I've ever represented Canada for anything. And uh, we got to represent Canada as the, the Canadian team in the Commonwealth Law moot. So we were competing against teams from New Zealand, Australia, the UK, Zambia, Uganda, uh, India. It was, it was crazy. And we got to compete. And not only that, uh, I'm pleased to say, Camille, that we won the competition. So we are the Commonwealth Law moot champions for 2019. So you're like basically a world champion of something right now. That's pretty cool. Congratulations. I have to hesitate 
We are not world champions. We are Commonwealth champions. Ah, close enough. Close it's kind enough. of a restricted entry group, right? The United States isn't involved. Neither is most of Europe. But I will take Commonwealth law champions. It's the fourth time that Canada has ever won the competition. And uh, we were very proud. It was an amazing thing. Uh, winning is always great. But when they announce you and our team performed amazingly. So um, I, I won't bore listeners with the, you know, the Commonwealth law mooting competition. And just to reiterate, I think Camille did this on a past episode. Mooting is essentially, it's it's where students pretend that they're doing a real court case. So we were up in front of some of the top judges in the world. Like there were Supreme Court justices from around the Commonwealth who were a part of it. And it was, it was pretty amazing to be uh, mooting in front of such distinguished uh, judges. So that was incredible. And of course, Camille... We had one day when we uh, got there um, where I got to go on safari, which I've never done before. So that was pretty oh, amazing. Oh, okay, good. Because really, the only things I'm interested in about your trip, like congrats on the trophy, that's great. But I want to know what animals you saw and what you managed to eat as a vegan in Zambia. <laughs> yeah, and of course, Victoria Falls. Victoria Falls are absolutely spectacular. Um, they are everything you'd imagine. If you don't know what they are, just Google Victoria Falls. They're essentially like... It's, it's like a two-kilometer long system of falls with like a, a humongous drop. So it's just like essentially there's this chasm in the middle of Africa where, these two, where this river, the, the Zambezi River, comes to the end of this chasm and just drops off. And it's just it's unbelievable. It's a, it's a really incredible thing. So we got to see the, the, Zam, the, the Victoria Falls from both the Zambian and the Zimbabwe side. So I got to go into Zimbabwe. And on safari, the best place to go was actually Botswana because where I was staying is in Livingstone, Af- uh, Zambia, and it's right at the corner of four countries. There's literally a four-country oh. border. Yes, uh, Zambia, Zimbabwe, Botswana, and, and Namibia. Um, we oh. didn't make it into Namibia, but we got like right to the border of Namibia as well. So we went to uh, 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 a safari in Botswana, and I have to tell you, it was just unbelievable. Again, everything you'd imagine of a safari. And it started out with um, a boat trip. So you do it on, you do the first part of the day. Um, on, on the water and essentially where you're on the water like as you can imagine most of the animals are coming to the water right um, yeah. regularly and what's amazing about uh, this particular place it's called Chobe National Park and anyone thinking about going to Africa I highly recommend uh, Chobe National Park and one of the reasons is that essentially um, the boat trip takes place on this big river but what's particularly amazing about it is in the middle of the river, there's this island, which has been declared part of the national park, and it's completely protected. And essentially, no animals live on this island because there's no shelter. It's just a small island. But essentially, it just grows humongous tons of grass. So essentially, what happens is a lot of the animals migrate during the day to this particular place and they come and eat. So essentially, if you're on this boat trip, you're eventually going to run into herds of animals crossing the river and going up onto this island to graze for the day. So it's, it's pretty oh. fantastic. It's a pretty, pretty amazing place. So we got there and uh, you get on the river and you see there's, you start to see, you know, little things, some birds and stuff. And eventually, I kid you not, about 20 minutes in, we just saw this majestic huge elephant just start to lumber down to the river and and it was just amazing like it was just you're just you're just looking at it and the boat's coming up to it and essentially the elephant like comes he's looking there's all these boats looking at him which is kind of a bit weird but eventually just like makes his way into the water swims across the channel 
and goes up onto the island to eat. And I'm like, this is amazing. And then like five minutes later, there's three elephants playing in the river. And before the end of the day, we'd, we'd encountered entire herds of elephants with babies and everything. And I swear to you, Camille, uh, by the last one, like I have some pictures, like we're riddle, literally like right up to the elephants, like, you know, wow. I'm talking like three feet away. They were pretty oblivious to our presence. And they were pretty just, they're just like, whatever. I think humans, they're used just eating. to eating. Yeah, I think they're used to the cars. They don't see them as predators or anything. So yeah. there were there were times when you could sort of see they were trying to get us to keep their distance. And there were other times, so long as the car sort of kept its distance and sidled off, then the elephants would approach if they felt like it. And they didn't display any threatening signs, like they weren't... Um, waving their ears or anything like that or or shouting in any way so as a result you sort of felt comfortable with them so that was amazing and it was like that all day I have to be honest so we're going on the river and the next thing you see is water buffalo and the next thing you see is a bunch of hippos and before you know it it's just sort of everything we got to see crocodiles as well but only you know bits of them they never came out of the water in full and and that was incredible and so we did that all day and we had lunch lunch you can call it lunch, but we'll get to the vegan food in just a moment. Uh, yeah, let's say, let's just say the food was a lot of peanut butter and jam sandwiches that I packed for the day, but we'll get to that in a moment. Um, so then you spend the rest of the day on land, which was uh, even more amazing because honestly, it was like, it's really hard to explain. I've been on safari before in Asia. And let's just say that when I was on safari in like Malaysia and Thailand, in the sense of, you know, safari looking for animals um it's a lot harder to find the animals and it's like yeah. here it, it's really unbelievable it's like essentially it's this great plane right because there's trees and stuff but mostly you're on the plains and it's just like it's literally it's like out of a cartoon or out of a you really don't think it's going to be like that but it kind of is if you, if you ever imagine like these kids pictures like my kids have where you know they put all the different animals in one picture and you kind of think it's fake. That's exactly yeah. what it was like. It was unbelievable. Like I have these pictures. Like there's two giraffes sitting next to a family of warthogs. Like as long as none of the predators are there, they're all just hanging out. It was the craziest wow. thing. And like I, if you pan the camera left, like there's a hippo. And before you know it, there's a herd of impala over there. And it was literally like you just looked everywhere. There were animals everywhere. And, and the only exception is um, we couldn't – we didn't get to see any of the predator species. So right. uh, we never – we, 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 you have to be really lucky from what I've heard to, to encounter any of the big cats. So we didn't get to see any of those, but everything else, like we ran into a family of baboons. We ran into a family of mongoose that were really cute and a massive herd of giraffe. So it was like, it was pretty incredible. The safari, it was like one day and it was like the longest, fullest day I've ever had. God, that sounds like a trip of a lifetime, Peter. I am jealous. I, I am very, very lucky. I, I should point out to our, our listeners, they won't care. Like, like of course, like, th- the best part was I didn't pay for it, right? It was all winning the competition was like the ticket to go to Africa. So yeah. it was pretty, pretty fantastic in that respect. So it was um, overall an incredible journey. Um, winning was amazing. I got to spend it with some great people, some some great students, Um who are graduating, I should point out that tomorrow, uh, Saturday night, we're having a big celebration that's being hosted by one of our sponsors to celebrate that we won the Commonwealth. So that's really exciting. And um, it was all great 
Except for the food. Like, oh, by the oh. way, Camille, I have to remind you, if anybody ever goes to Africa, you have to bring coffee. It's the weirdest thing in the world, like, let alone soy milk. Like, I was smart enough to bring little packets of soy milk because I knew, like, you can't get soy milk in Africa. Like, yeah, it just, yeah. Non-dairy milk does not exist. Like, the second we left, we left the last airport, that was the last time I saw anything resembling non-dairy milk. And that's true even at, like you know, five-star hotels, right? It didn't matter. Like, nobody has anything like that. And, like, the food, like, there were places where there was really nothing to eat. Like, literally. You know, I guess I could have had French fries or something, but there was literally nothing to eat. And uh, it was was pretty brutal. Like, for a couple of days, I was eating protein bars and and peanut butter and jam sandwiches. And then, finally, like, the only, like, we found one place that had, enough stuff that I could eat like not you know not a huge assortment but they at least had a few clearly identified vegan options and then um and then we found on one of the last days they had a buffet now buffet wasn't great but at least they had like lots of salads and stuff right and bread and I could like you know cobble together a meal so the food was pretty brutal um yeah but otherwise an amazing trip well, I guess seeing all those animals makes up for the food, and I'm sure the trophy does too. So welcome back. I'm sure you're eating much better now, but it's uh, it's good to have you back on the show and really awesome to hear about how cool that trip was. Yes, and I know, Camille, that while I was in Africa, you were strutting the red carpet. Is it strutting the red carpet? Is that the right way to put it? Because I, <laughs> I was I, actually strutting the green carpet. But strutting yes, I the was... green carpet, showing us showing us what you got with some vegan fashion. Is that what was going on? Yeah, I made my modeling debut in a fashion show in Toronto, which was honestly, uh, I don't think I was the best model. It it felt just like really uncomfortable, but it was really fun. So it was at the Right Side Boutique in Toronto, which if you're ever in the city and you're looking for ethical clothing that's all vegan and accessories too, check them out. They're Danforth and Woodbine and they hosted this amazing show. They sold tickets. It was sold out. And all the proceeds were going to Wishing Well Sanctuary, this really great sanctuary for farmed animals. But the point of the show was to A, raise money, and B, show people that vegan fashion is a cool thing. So I got to wear a couple fun dresses, and yeah, they dressed us all up, and uh, it was a good time. It was a did good you time. Do probably the... not as cool as a trip to Africa, but No, probably it. not, but did you do that, like, walk, turn, left, strut? Like, I, tr- I tried. Do... I tried. I, I don't know. I, I think I was pretty awkward. Like, the only part for me that felt natural is when they were like, okay, now tell us what animal justice says. And I was like, oh, no problem. I can talk about our work, but don't make me, like, wear a dress and try to look cool. Anyway, did, it was Did fun. you have any fun. signature looks, Camille? Like, anything we can patent or trademark? Like, you know. Like really... Blue Steel? Yeah, something like Blue Steel. <laughs> no. Really... No? Nothing? <laughs> no, the awkward walk, maybe. <laughs> the awkward walk. I love it. Yeah. yeah the awkward walk. Fantastic. I'm really sorry I missed that, Camille. I would have enjoyed watching the fashion show. Yeah, I'm I'm sure there's photos to come. (laughs) But while I was strutting my stuff, you were being nominated for another award, Peter. Yet another award. You're nominated as one of Canadian Lawyer Magazine's top 25 most influential lawyers. Yes, nominated is wonderful. I'm very honored to be nominated. The nominee did mention Paw and Order and my work on some criminal law issues. And I should say, I would be lying if I didn't ask some of our pawn order supporters to go and vote for me um i have 
by my I've done this. This is my third time being nominated, and it's it's great honor. Like somebody went out of their way to nominate me. They thought it was um, um, a good idea. They thought it was worth it. All great, but like it's a tough category. I'm in against like two Supreme Court judges, and you know some of the most well recognized lawyers in Canada. So it's an honor just to make the list. But uh, I'm gonna need but help now from Pawn Order guys to actually to win. Vote. Yeah, you guys need to go vote for Peter. So the way this works is that there's an open round of voting where just anyone from the public can go cast their vote for Peter or anyone else. And then there's like a judging round where they take into account the support that somebody got and some other factors too. So if you go vote for Peter, you are increasing the chance that animal law is going to make it to the top 25 most influential lawyers. Yeah, I should point uh, that out because like you you were nominated last year and I've been nominated a couple times and there's been a couple of other animal lawyers nominated for that, but we've never won. And no. I think that, that a win like this, as much as it'd be great for me, um, you know, personally, because I won't lie, that'd be great for me, but it would be great great i would really like to see it for animal justice and animal law generally because like it's if you say in the top 25 lawyers in canada includes somebody who's doing a lot of animal law work that's just good for animal law and that's where we need some votes yeah totally so please go vote for peter you can also support two other animal lawyers who are nominated so rebecca bradder who co-hosted the episode with me last uh last week and Victoria Schroff, also a Vancouver practicing animal lawyer, they are both also nominated. So you can check those gals out too and cast your ballot for them too if you want. Especially because they're not competing against me. They're in different categories. So that's even oh, better. brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fantastic. Well, thanks for that, Camille. I'd forgotten about that, but that's uh, good to mention. Thank you. Yeah, so uh, in, in, the mean, in the meantime, while you're voting for Peter and spreading the word about this podcast, there is something else you can do to help us keep things going. So you can visit our Patreon page, patreon.com slash order to become a supporter of the podcast. Can this I is, thank I our supporters, only... Camille? Because I, I didn't Please do, do. We've got some new folks who signed up to, to, to donate since last week. Go ahead, Peter. Yeah, I just, I reiterate what I said last week, even though I wasn't there, I had my little message and it's just like, I'm blown away by this. And honestly, I'm, can I be honest? I'm going to be forthright with the listeners. I am really sick. I got, I came down with like uh, a bad cold. It's, you know, I was on a plane. So like, psh, I'm going to come down with something. I don't know. What it is. And I was like, Camille, I'm not missing, I'm not missing this episode because our Patreon supporters they deserve it. I want to do a good episode this week. So I was I, I get more excited, don't you? I just do. Every time we get an email ah, that somebody awesome. signed up, it's just like, oh, thank you so much. So I want to thank our latest supporters, Kelly, Allison, Phoebe, Sonali, and a very generous anonymous person who didn't want to be named. Thank you so much for the support. We are just so grateful. It allows us to do so much more. And as I said, it gets me so much more excited to never miss an episode of Pawn Order. Yeah, we're already at over $100 a month. This has allowed us to hire an editor, which is really helpful because it frees up our producer's time for other projects. And just a reminder that you can become a supporter for as low as a dollar a month. And we've got perks ranging from handwritten thank you notes, name mentions on the podcast, shout outs on social media, a chance to dedicate an entire episode to a human or a non-human animal. You could maybe appear on the show, get animal justice merchandise and discounts. And of course, as always, our utmost gratitude and appreciation. So please uh, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash backslash paw and order to become a supporter. And speaking of support, we oh, our want... our favorites. 
Our favorite, we want to give a shout out to our amazing sponsor, The Grinning Goat, which is Canada's vegan fashion boutique. They have been supporting us now for quite some time. They're an amazing store in Calgary, also online, and they ship across the country. They have tons of amazing new spring and summer shoes right now that you might want to check out. All kinds of other body, um, you know, like shampoo and things like that. Uh, I have tons of stuff from there already. They also have a wide array of other clothing. All of it is vegan, of course. And yeah, if you order forget. with them, yeah, it's all vegan. If you order with them, you can use the code PAW15 at checkout for 15% off of your order. PAW15 for 15% off your order. This reminds me, it's summertime. It's time to dig out my 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 summer boots because they're not winter boots. My They're my Nick boots, I believe, yes. You have summer boots? Don't you wear sandals? Well, no, they're just like light spring summer boots. Like they're not heavy, uh, so I can't wear okay. them. They're, they're like, not, you know what I mean? They're, they're too nice. The winter would destroy oh, them. Oh, yeah. They're not Edmonton winter appropriate. No, so I they're like you. spring fall boots. So I got to dig them out because I put them away for the winter. Very excited. Thank you, Grinning Goat. And uh, please, everybody, you can support us by going to the Grinning Goat. It's, it's .com, not CA, correct? .com. Uh, I think that's right. You'll find them. Okay, in the news, lots going on as always. The first story we want to talk about is the latest case of a pig farm being exposed for just horrific cruelty via footage released from, from the inside of one of these farms. So this is Excelsior Pork Farms. The owner of this farm is actually a director of the BC Pork Producers Association. So that's an industry commodity group for pig farmers. And Peter, you'd kind of think, wouldn't you kind of think that the head, of, the head of an industry association, someone on the board of an industry group, might adhere to higher standards of farming? Yeah, never happened before, right? Oh, wait. Yeah, it happens all the time. Um, it's amazing how often we investigate farms and there's like got a link to somebody who's involved in one way or another with like a pork industry board or, you know, I don't know, they're a NAWAC, rep uh, sorry, uh, uh, an NFAC representative or whatever. Um, it just goes to show us that cruelty of this kind is much more common than we believe. And, uh, you know, it's something that's going on even in places where you'd think it wouldn't. Yeah, and what's remarkable about this, I mean, the cruelty itself is horrible. There were tons of dead piglets, one corpse of a, a pig that was in a pretty advanced state of decomposition, pigs with open wounds and sores, pigs with injuries so that they could barely stand up, just really, really horrible stuff. CTV uh, aired the footage on the program earlier this week, and the BCSBCA is now investigating. And the response of the industry was to say, well, we don't want people to think this is normal for the industry. Well, guess what? It is. This is what's happening on the farm of one of your industry representatives. And then they start went on to question whether the video might be staged and whether getting, they're getting the whole picture. And it's like, yeah, no, I'm sorry. You can't stage the corpse of a decomposing pig. It lacks context, Camille. We, oh, we, yeah. we don't. Sorry, I'm reading an exact quote. Um, from our friend Chad Gortson, director of the BC Pork Producers Association, whose reaction is shock of disappointment that someone would be taking video on a farm out of context. We don't know when it was taken. We don't know why the animals were there. There's no explanation for it. You're right. You know, it lacks context. You're right. Decomposing pigs and um, pigs uh, who are clearly suffering. You're right. We don't have the full context, Camille. We need more information. Yeah, I, yeah. it's just amazing that he wasn't shocked and uh, despairing that the pigs were in this condition. He's shocked that somebody took a video of it. Well, guess what? That's going to keep happening. 
And wait, Camille, the good news is they've contacted a local veterinarian who's an expert, and he's going into the barn to check out and report back to BC Pork. Once again, what do we see? Let's keep it in-house because, you know, we need to investigate and we need to see whether this is being done. This is not a criminal matter, of course, Camille. It's something that BC Pork needs to take care of. And again, that's common in an industry that regulates itself, investigates itself, and has no interest in anybody else getting involved. And that's essentially the message that's being conveyed to the public. It's just amazing. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And um, th this isn't on our news list, but just a couple of things I read on Twitter today. The federal government gave $10 million today. Today is the April 25th, $10 million to an Ontario pork producer. And yesterday they gave $5 million to the National Farmed Animal Care Council, which helps set up these voluntary, not real rules that the industry can follow if it wants. So, you know, just to make the point that the industry continues to do what it wants with government support, uh, that may be normal right now, but that's not acceptable. And they only stop if we stop them. We've got to actually set up rules that actually mean something, and we've got to get away from this idea, this spin that comes out of every farm association that suggests that, no, 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 we're looking into this, right? And, and, and we, we've got this under control. So long as we continue to believe as a country that the interests of animals are best served by the people who have a vested interest in exploiting them and using them, the longer this type of stuff will continue to go on because we're simply not monitoring. We're essentially the only time we ever see anything that comes out of these farms is when activists break in and then, of course, get, you know, attacked for doing breaking and entering and the rest. Yeah, you said it. Really disappointing. Let's move on to some brighter stories. Camille, I'm sure we have some good news. Actually, we do. We, we sort of have good news, right? Yeah, yeah, I think this is largely positive. Well, this is this is a good news, bad news story. I'll tell you why, but let's go with the good news part of it. All right, so Lambton Shores, Ontario, just passed a bylaw to prohibit a bunch of exotic animals, especially large cats, uh, because there was a threat that a private zoo wanted to open up in Grand Bend, which falls within the municipality of Lambton Shores. And Peter, this zoo was calling itself a sanctuary. It's owned by this guy named Mark Drysdale, who used to run, funny enough, another zoo down in the Niagara region called Ringtail Ranch. And that zoo was actually run out of town uh, because health authorities ordered it to close down because there were 17 reports of humans being bitten by animals at that facility in only a five-year period. So this Come guy on, Camille. Up... Camille, be fair. That's only three bites a year. Oh, great. <laughs> Sorry. No problem, right? Yeah, it's only three animal bites a year. Okay, yeah, go ahead. So this guy picks up shop. He's, he's kicked out of uh, Ringtail Ranch down in Niagara, and he picks up shop and moves up a little bit farther north to Grand Bend and wants to open up again and have all these exotic animals and large cats. And the municipality took really swift action and huge props to them for acting so quickly, but they immediately had a special council meeting and they passed a bylaw making sure that uh, exotic animals could not be owned and possessed in that jurisdiction. It's hard to believe, Camille, that anybody would ever pick up and move jurisdiction just to get around certain rules involved with uh, owning animals. It kind of <laughs> reminds me of our, our good friend and, you know, Ontario lunatic. I can't even remember her name. She's so nutty. I just call her the IKEA monkey lady, which is kind of yeah. unfair, which is kind of unfair to the monkey. But like, that's literally what she did. As soon as she found out she couldn't have her monkeys in Toronto, she just moved outside of Toronto and set up her own little 
I don't even know what to call her own little menagerie. Private you menagerie. Can, oh she's God, you can look it up online. Monkeys. She's such a she's such a loon. This woman, like, she's just really, she really uh, uh, is is the reason why. The only re- I mean, I don't want to call this a bad news story because it's a good news story, like good for Lambton Shores. But do you know how many municipalities there are in Ontario? Like, the idea of working municipality by municipality is just deeply, deeply problematic and shows how poor a job we've done at regulating exotic animals. And exotic animals just raise all kinds of problems um, of, of, you know, beyond the ordinary animal problems. Like exotic animals include a lot of animals that are dangerous, right, or need very special care. And we, we should not be allowing them to, to be exist except in very special conditions. Yeah, no, they're, they're not appropriate as pets. There might be a situation where you could have a sanctuary to rehome these animals that have been kept as pets, but uh, generally they shouldn't be they shouldn't be held privately by individuals or by zoos. As you point out, Peter, there's public safety concerns. There's very serious welfare concerns. There's exotic pet trade concerns. Uh, many mortalities along the way before they even get to zoos or private homes. And tragically, Ontario, throughout its entire history as a province, has completely failed to regulate exotic animals. It's leaving this to municipalities to do on a case-by-case basis, instead of doing what other provinces done, have done, which is have specific rules that apply across the province. The only animals, Peter, that you can't own in Ontario right now are a pit bull Pitbulls, and an orca. Yeah. Yeah, it's really crazy. And it's like, in fairness, Camille, I mean, the only thing I'll say in fairness to Ontario is that, like, they're just following the trend. This has been a huge failure across the board. We've really failed exotic animals. Are, are there jurisdictions in Canada that do it properly that you're aware of? I wouldn't say anyone does it amazingly, but New Brunswick, for instance, already has something called a positive list, which is instead of listing what animals are right. banned, they yeah, say, I here's the animals uh, that you can have. And that's better because it makes it a shorter list. Like you could envision a list where it's really just cats, dogs, um, guinea pigs, rabbits, like animals who are domesticated. As it is in some municipalities. That, that, that I believe, is the the list in some municipalities. Things are moving in that direction. And and New Brunswick, no other province has um, a short enough list yet or, or the right kinds of lists. But some are moving in that direction, but not Ontario to date. Yeah, and, and the only thing I'll say, again, not in fairness, but, like, if this is a problem in Canada, my God, it's mo- even more of a problem in the U.S. Like, the number of exotic animals that are held in states across the U.S. I mean, these are the types of cases. I mean, it's uh, again, I don't want to give it the idea that it's great here, but if you, if you follow the ALDF feed, which is the Animal Legal Defense Fund in the U.S., like, they are regularly dealing with, like, tigers in a cage, you know, at a gas station in Louisiana. Like, you know, it's not like you see those cases arising in Canada very often not to say that we're doing great or anything but man I remember once reading that there are far more tigers in captivity in the U.S. in private hands than there are in the rest of the world it's amazing yeah it's true isn't that insane oh it's just crazy yeah they have literally like I don't think I don't think they've progressed on that at all I think the ALDF has done well at occasionally getting individual animals out of particularly bad situations but like the advancement on exotic animals has really been slow which seems so weird because it seems like such it seems like one of those win-win issues you know what i mean like it really does it just seems like like why would we want people to have tigers and lions in private hands like it seems to me and and the worst part is you can grandfather the problem out of existence right you can just 
Sorry, that's a legal term. Like if you if you just want to do it in a way that you know you don't you're worried about seizing all these tigers and where would they go? And I'm not saying that that we should grandfather it out of existence, but you could you could grandfather and the way we're doing with the whales, for example, we're allowing you know much to the chagrin of many, we're allowing marine land to have the whales and orcas that it has, right? And then once those whales die, that's the end of it. Yeah, there's ways to do this. There's ways to do this. So yeah, we'll keep fighting. Frustrating. All right, let's move so on. So I think I think we just turned a positive news story into an <laughs> No, no, it's positive. One. But but positive. we have another positive news story. All right, let's Bill go. to ban cosmetic testing on animals was finally introduced in the House of Commons recently. So Peter, that's Bill S214. It started off in the Senate. It uh, worked its way through the Senate. It actually passed the Senate almost a year ago, but then it languished for a very long time before being introduced in the House of Commons. So it's it's in the House. Better hurry. Yeah, better hurry. So that's the danger is that there's not much time left. The House of Commons and, and Senate and the entire parliament rises at the end of June before the fall election. And if it's not passed by then, it won't pass Forever. So how, how do the um, odds look, Camille? You're an Ottawa watcher. You'll you'll know this better than I. I know they've been busy with a lot of stuff lately. Uh, how does yeah, it look? They've, looking okay. They've been busy. There's been some some filibustering and some procedural stuff because of other scandals that have been politicized, and other parties are trying to make hay from them. Um, I don't know. I, I don't feel like it's looking great, to be honest. I it's got to go to com- it's need... got to go to committee first. Is that correct? It's still it's, yeah. It, it was it introduced has to go in to first the reading. Committee. Yeah. It needs to be debated twice before it goes to committee. It needs to. Uh, go to the health committee. It needs to be amended potentially. I'm hearing that people want amendments to it, and then it has to go back to the Senate, which just makes the entire process maybe longer than we have time for. So, if you're listening and you want this to pass, I would urge you to call your MP today Uh-oh. and let them know this is a priority for you and oh, it no. needs to happen. You did it right, just as I was going. You were like, "Okay, call your MP." I knew it. I knew we couldn't get through one show without telling you to call somebody's MP, Camille. Definitely not. It's never going to happen, Peter. (laughs) (laughs) I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic. We'll get through one show. But in any event, yes, do call your MP and get them on this as quickly as you can. I think we have one last story. One last story broke in today. One last story today. I Yeah, this is another parliamentary uh, story. So I have been meaning to read for quite some time the transcripts from the Agriculture Committee of the House of Commons, which has recently been studying public confidence in agriculture and food products. And they've had all of these people from the egg industry come and testify about uh, public, about what they think about consumer perceptions of the agriculture field in Canada. Recently, on April 4th, they had somebody from the Canadian Mink Breeders Association come, Peter, which is interesting to, you know, even think of of fur farms in the agriculture sector. Like, I don't know, to me, agriculture is more about food, but I guess they're raising animals, so they qualify in some way. So this guy... Gary Hazelwood shows up and he starts complaining about the fact that activists are winning ground against the fur industry. And he says that it's very dangerous for activists to be exposing what's happening. He says, we recommend the committee take a look at legislation in the United States entitled the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act. He says, allowing animal extremists and anti-agriculture groups to slander farmers' names with untruths and doctored videos hurts all of agriculture 
and that this can easily be remedied with the right legislation. So Peter, he's telling this committee, he's actively lobbying for uh, legislation that would make animal activism a terrorist offense. Yes, let's, by all means, let's mimic one of the most derided pieces of legislation in the U.S. and bring it home to Canada. That sounds like a great idea. Um, it is, I remember hearing about this bill when it was enacted in the U.S., the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act, the idea of equating a particular time kind of social activism with terrorism and all that that means to the world is deeply, deeply troubling. Um, it, it, is, it, is, it is so deeply troubling uh, that I remember how many people were, were banding up to fight about it. I, and I can't remember, Camille, whether it was ever challenged constitutionally in the U.S. or not. I know they've gone after the ag-gag stuff. I can't remember if they've gone after the animal enterprise terrorism stuff. It has been challenged and it's been upheld. It's really, it's really disturbing. And, and, you know, just do a quick Google to see of all the damage that it's done. But it's really taken people who commit basically minor property offenses mm, mm. And put them in prison for very, very lengthy periods in restricted communications units where they have limited ability to even contact the outside world. Um, it's criminalized people who've inflicted economic damage through legitimate campaigning against industries. So it's by, terrible stuff. Uh, and it's got it's got that chill factor too, right? Because as soon as you mention this stuff, I mean, the last thing you ever want in your life is to be associated with anything that has the word terrorism in it because of all the impact that has upon you in every way. I mean, the spinoff impact is amazing. And nobody ever goes down to dig deep and look at what kind of terrorism it is or whatever, because once it's got that branding on it, you're just essentially screwed. Yeah, no, it's really disturbing. And and perhaps even more disturbing than the comments by this guy was that conservative MP Bev Shipley, an Ontario MP, said in response, he kind of agreed with, with these comments. And he says, um, actually, I don't know what the definition of terrorist is, but when somebody intentionally breaks into a secured place and threatens the animals, you know, he's kind of agreeing that this this kind of, of thing is uh, is is what he would consider to be terrorism. So I find that really troubling coming from an MP. And I guess the point of all of this is just that we need to be aware that this threat is out there. I don't know if it would work if they ever tried to pass such disturbing legislation, because I think it would be perhaps unwelcome scrutiny on the fur industry, on the agriculture industry. But we do know that undercover investigations and activism do have these guys nervous because they work. So don't be surprised if we do try to see something. Yeah, I do think that in Canada, generally speaking, the discourse around terrorism and terrorism offenses has been a little bit more restrained than in the U.S. And I think that would work in, would work against this type of legislation. I do think that people are deeply concerned with the type of conduct that gets labeled with the big T. And I do think that in the U.S., they've been a lot less concerned about that and they're willing to lump things in and, you know, broaden and continue to expand investigative powers and the like. So I do think I do think that's we've got something working against this sort of thing. Just the general concern that certainly academics and a lot of a lot of even even politicians have about expanding the terrorist definition. So I do think I mean one of the weaknesses of legislation. I don't want to get it into great deal. Is essentially it takes certain types of crimes and calls them terrorism. And the problem with that is, as I said, the designation of terrorism is so deeply concerning that if you allow that to happen, you, you first of all undermine the original definition of terrorism, which is supposed to be very powerful and restrictive. And of course, you you broaden the scope of who you consider to be terrorists. So I think that there would be concern in doing that in Canada, because frankly, if you could do it for animal activists, why not any activists who commit these types of crimes? 
Yeah. Yeah. And uh, if you're interested in learning a bit more about this, go back to the episode with uh, Taylor Zavitz, who was on, I think, last September or October on the podcast. And her research uh, focuses a lot on how animal activists are called terrorists often by the state and the consequences of this. All right. Welcome to our main segment of the show. And today we're going to be talking about little different. We're going to talk about animals and how they are treated, usually in companion animal cases, in cases involving death and injury. And our goal here is fairly simple. We want to look at the way in which animals are treated in this case, some of the obstacles in pursuing remedies for animals, and talk about what that means for animals more generally. And it's a bit of a change from some of the stuff we've done before. We've been focusing more on suffering of animals, especially in farm contexts and research contexts and others. And, and to be perfectly honest, I've never thought that the companion animal situation where most animals, let's be honest, are quite privileged compared to some of the animals others were talking about. But I do think there are a lot of interesting uh, uh, legal issues that arise when you're talking about trying to seek redress when somebody does your dog wrong. Most most commonly, when you're talking about veterinarians, uh, um, kennels, etc., how do you actually seek recourse? Because frankly, I get a lot of calls of this nature. Yeah, Animal Justice gets a lot of emails too from people who, who feel like their vet was negligent and their animal died or was injured and, and shouldn't have been, and they're often wondering what they can do about it. And I usually refer them to a private lawyer who might be able to help, but uh, frankly, it's a difficult area of the law, and, and you have a lot so, of personal so experience difficult. in this, Peter, yep. which I know we'll get into, but mm. yeah, it often comes up in the veterinary context because to... Uh, have liability for an injury or the loss of an animal, there has to be some sort of uh, causation for this that you can pin on a particular person. And it occurs often, I think most often, in veterinary medicine because you mm. actually have a professional interacting with an animal who might already be sick or injured or doing medical procedures on them. But it could also come up uh, with poor care at a groomer's or at a kennel where an animal's being kept, uh, neighbors killing animals, other animals attacking a person's animals that they own. There's a variety of contexts in which this can occur. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I want to say, like, you know, we're about to talk about some bad cases. And, and again, just in case there are any out there listening or not or whatever, like, I'm, I'm not uh, here to impugn vets or groomers or kennels or anything like that. I know that there are lots of great ones. It's like any, to be honest, it's like anything else. You know what I mean, Camille? If we were talking about doctors, it would be the same thing. If we we're talking about doctors treating humans, I don't want to, I don't want anyone to think that I'm going after or talking about this in a way that's uh, negative towards individual doctors. It's just the recognition that in any profession, lawyers, etc., there will be bad ones. And yeah, I mean, sure. Look at Doctor Recky, the, the case of the <laughs> veterinarian in St. Catharines, who exactly. was actually caught on film abusing animals. You know, it happens. And I think the vast majority of professionals are great at their jobs, but mm. uh, sometimes there's negligence, sometimes there's intentional mistreatment. Exactly. And sometimes it's a matter of making mistakes. And like anything else, it's like anything else. When anybody, you know, you're driving and you make a mistake and hit somebody else's car, I'm not uh, saying you're a bad person because you did that. But the question is, are you liable? That's really the issue. Like, should, shouldn't you have to pay for the damage incurred by somebody else? And frankly, I get quite a few calls, not quite as many as last week's guest, you know, Rebecca Bretter, who does this more or less full time, right? But, but I have represented now a few clients in these types of cases, and I get more and more calls from people who have been treated badly by the vet. And the problem is twofold. Uh, one of the biggest problems is that the vet, right, so you get treated badly and your animal is mistreated one way or another, or in worst case scenario, 
scenarios, your animal dies at the vet, right? And there are lots of problems with that. So you get these clients coming to you and they feel deeply, deeply aggrieved by the loss that they've suffered. I mean, we all sit here, anybody listening to the show, my guess has some sort of connection to their animal. And when you have animals living in your house and sharing your life with you, it is deeply disturbing that these animals are treated in a way that's, you know, that harms them and you want to do something about it. Yeah, and this is this is where the law comes into tension with how people think about animals because the Does law still ever. treats animals like property. And we're going to get into why that's a particular problem in this case pretty soon. But people don't conceive of their pets, of their companion animals as property. Obviously, we think of them more like family members and losing one of them or having one of them injured. The, the damage that you feel about that and the, the, the emotional suffering that you feel about that, it's not linked to how much they were worth to you, how much you may have paid for them, but it's really linked to them and their importance to you emotionally as a member of your family. Yeah, and this can happen in all sorts of different ways. I mean, as I said, in the worst case scenario, your animal is killed. In other cases, like, you know, there's cases I've dealt with um, where, where the vet just undertakes procedures without asking you. And that's deeply disturbing as well. You get back and your animal, well, you know, he's supposed to go in for a minor routine procedure, I don't know, to fix X or Y. And suddenly the vet's done something completely different and it's caused your animal to be affected in a way that you find to be negative. And in these types of cases, you're like, well, wait a minute. Like, wh- how the hell did that happen? Like, it, I, again, it's always difficult. You're very, I'm very reluctant in a lot of cases to, you know, equate animals with humans, both because I, I think that's troubling in a lot of different ways. But but sometimes it's it's helpful to look at it. It's like imagine I took my kid to the doctor, right? You you would the, in no circumstances zero would there be an idea that they would perform a procedure without calling me. Except in fairness, Camille, you know if if my child suddenly went into cardiac arrest, like that's a different situation. But but yeah. there's there's no way they would undertake a procedure just because they think it's in my child's best interest. Like they would be facing a mega lawsuit. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But that maybe that perception is a little bit different when it comes to animals. And, and, um, you know, maybe not all veterinarians have that same idea of them. Yeah. In a for-profit industry, too. It's it's really troubling. And, and That's a really of, good point, actually, yeah. for-profit industry. You've got to remember who uh, economic motivators are, are powerful, and it's always important to follow the it, money when it comes to the use and exploitation of animals. Again, I'm, I'm not impugning. You know, I'm willing to assume that in most of these cases, the vet thinks it's in the best interest of the animal to undertake a particular procedure and decides not to get the consent of the owner slash guardian, whatever your view is. And it's like, but they then they just do it. And then the question is, well, what do you do about it? Like, it's just, it's, again, in, in, in a child situation, no doctor would ever think of doing it because it's so plainly forbidden. And I should point out that the veterinary guidelines in every province in Canada make it clear that the idea of informed consent prevails and that you have to get the informed consent of the owner or guardian. But here's the thing, and here's the difference, Camille. And this is where we get to this property value thing and what's actually lost. And I'll dig deeper into that damages thing in other situations. Here's the difference. When you're dealing with a human being, okay, imagine this, Camille. Let's say my child goes into the doctor and the doctor just performs a procedure, okay, without asking. They don't get the informed consent. Whether or not 
that procedure is beneficial for my child is like the tiniest part of the equation. Like the breach itself is in failing to obtain the informed consent of the parents. So the idea, let's just take a worst case scenario because you know, Camille, if you studied, you went to law school, right? And you've read all those cases about like Jehovah's Witnesses who refuse blood transfusions and stuff like that. Like imagine, imagine the doctor decides, screw it. I'm giving you the blood transfusion, like without going to get an order of the court, right? Like they're going to face massive damage award simply for like the breach of the informed consent. That's the problem in and of itself. So you follow me there? Yeah, totally. You're you're taking away a person in that case that they're right to choose what happens to their body. And that's obviously something that the law doesn't want. Yeah. And they recognize that as value in and of itself. But when you're dealing with an animal, it doesn't work that way. There are all these guidelines that talk about informed consent and the need for it. But even if you look at them carefully, they sort of go on to say, well, you know, as long as, you know, and breaches of this are problematic when the procedure wasn't necessary. So like they, they subtly undermine the decision in the same way because again, the question is, well, can you prove damage? And the intrinsic right to make the choice is not always viewed as something that's of value in and of itself. The question is, even then, is whether or not the conduct was necessary. And I think that's deeply problematic because I think whether or not the, pro the, 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 the procedure was a good idea or not, you want to be able to make that choice. I mean, sometimes I've had questions with my animals in the past, Camille, especially when they age, when it's like there are choices to be made. Like you have to make a choice about your animal. And sometimes that means not doing a procedure and sometimes it means doing it. But you want to be able to make that choice thinking about what's best for your animal from your perspective, not the vets. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So let's get into what happens. What is a person's remedy when uh, an animal's is, uh, when a choice is made for an animal without the guardian's consent? What happens when there is an injury? What happens when there is, uh, in the worst case scenario, a death? What can a person do about it? Well, that's the biggest problem. I mean, traditionally, the view of the the view of the, the courts was that the animal was only worth what it was worth. And for all of those of you who agree, like I do, that the best animals to have are mixed breeds that you rescue from certain shelters, um, the truth of the matter is the value is zero. And I can tell you that this has problems in multiple ways. First of all, I'm, we're going to get to the point. We're going to come a little bit later. The law, let me just, you know, foreshadow by saying the law has evolved a bit to reflect some sense of value even for these animals. But I want to make it clear to everybody that at the initial stage, the worst part of this, the most annoying part from the plaintiff stage when you're trying to represent these poor people is that this law, the way it's conducted right now, gives the veterinarians all the power. They can resist everything, and they do, because they know all the cards are stacked in their favor. So at the early stages of litigation, most of the time, it's in their best interest to agree to nothing, as crazy as that sounds, because they know that as egregious as the conduct they may have committed is, they can always fall back on the same argument, being that the courts don't respect the value of animals. So this affects not only the litigation stage, but it affects the negotiation stage. Usually when you're involved in a negotiation on a civil case, there's some give and take, especially in, in, the, in the instance where both sides agree that negligence has occurred. You're just discussing the nature of the damages. But in most cases, you can go to vets with reasonable proposals, and, and oftentimes they'll just resist and say, well, you're not getting anything. So how do you have an incentive for vets to ever do well? 
when they're essentially these vets who we think of as caring for our animals are essentially in a position where they really can't be punished for anything they do wrong. It's, it's, it's an astonishing situation. Yeah, they know that the costs of going to court for the person who's concerned about the loss of their animal are very high. And they know that the courts don't take these cases seriously, at least not really so much to date. So yeah, you're right. What's their incentive? And, and I should add, Camille, that like one of the problems, and, and Rebecca could speak to this as well, is that every, every client is in that first situation place where it's like, okay, well, we feel that the law has evolved. And I feel that the law has evolved in a way that makes it better. And I will say, Camille, that I have reached settlements with some vet cases, you and I have spoken about this privately, that have been pretty good. And I think one of the reasons is because I threaten them that I'm going to do this pro bono, and I'm just going to go and litigate it because I want to see the precedent made. And I think that has been a useful strategy in sort of getting some better awards, right? And then it's in my client's interest to settle. But every client is in the position of trying to be the first one and that is a, a not a great position to be in and one of the reasons for that is because like the law even like the better cases we're going to talk about are not great and we are left with a situation where every client is like well do I want to take this to the superior court to really push this all the way or do I want to take a crappy settlement offer from the vet and that's the position yeah. they're in. And it, it sucks to be their lawyer because I get these cases and when they get some of these crappy offers sometimes I'm like you know, that's the best you're going to get or else you're going to have to pay me $20,000. Sorry, I don't work for free. And 20, 000, you know, maybe not $20,000. I do, I do tend to do some animal stuff pro bono. and Maybe I would in the right case. But it's like you're going to have to pay the risk of costs to the other side if we lose, if we shoot for big damage awards. And litigation is slow and time-consuming. And sometimes it's better to take the lesser amount and just go with it. And that's the problem with the way the animal value cases are. Even the ones we're going to talk about in a minute that are good are not that great. And we don't have a lot of good precedents. And because of the low value of animals historically, it's hard to get good precedents from the courts. Yeah, absolutely. It's a very under-litigated area, which reflects, obviously, the, the very low damages typically available, the high cost of litigation, and the needs for things like expert reports to prove what kind of negligence there was by the vet, if any, and other costs like that. So, yeah, why don't we talk about what the traditional conception of damages has been for the loss of property, which animals still are. Uh, traditionally, the damages available have been the cost of replacing that property. And, and like you pointed out, Peter, maybe it's a situation where you purchase a dog from a breeder and it was $2,000, $3,000. I don't really know what breeder dogs go for these days, but I feel like that's somewhere in the ballpark. You know, so maybe somebody could get that amount for the loss of a, a breeder dog. But if we're looking at animals who were adopted, Obviously, that amount isn't available. And at any rate, even a couple thousand dollars doesn't typically reflect the way that people feel about their animals. And I don't think most people would feel that that's sufficient compensation in a situation where somebody's dog dies because of a veterinarian's negligence. So that's the problem with thinking of animals as fungible, replaceable property, which uh, absolutely. you can compensate and, and with I money. I should point out it's it's actually worse in some ways when you're talking where the animal lives because where the animal lives and is suffering in some way, right, because of the action, um, that suffering does not get awarded anything because property can't suffer 
Like, it's like saying that my car is upset about the damage done to it. And even though we know that animals are alive, the idea of animal suffering, like this animal has undergone a procedure and it is now suffering in a way that's unusual. Like you may get, if you can, if you can quantify that damage, if I have to take that animal back to another vet, sure. I may actually get that money if I can trace it back to the negligence or if I have to get my dog some sort of prosthetic or whatever. Again, quantifiable things you will get money for, but you won't get money for the dog's suffering or the dog's loss of enjoyment of life. Like these things yeah. that for a human would be recognized instantly, they do not have value to the courts as of yet. No. So instead, because we don't have a system that reflects the actual value of these animals and the suffering that they endure, courts are trying to do something, some courts anyway, something a little bit different to sort of get at this idea of, of suffering. Uh, but instead of imputing the suffering to the animal, what they're starting to do is award the owner extra damages for the pain and suffering that they feel when their animal is gone. So it's yeah, a really it's a, sort of roundabout way of getting exactly. at this, which frankly is is not, I, I mean, I admire judges who are sort of trying to do something because I think they recognize that there's a problem and many judges have made statements to that effect in their judgments, but it really doesn't get to the heart of the issue. No, and what's so frustrating about it is we've already started to see cases in other instances where uh, judges have started to recognize that animals are special types of property. It's not like judges are, you know, judges in common law jurisdictions have the ability to, 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 to help the law evolve in ways that would reflect the realities of the situation. And the truth of the matter is the realities of the situation around animals has changed dramatically, both at the legislative level and even in the courts. And it's frustrating to see that most of these judges haven't recognized, you know, what like animals are special types of property and if we can sh show that these animals are you know in a position that's that's different from the ordinary type of property maybe it's time to look at a different model but that just really hasn't been quick and happening and as you point out this idea of going for emotional distress is sort of a roundabout way of the problem and frankly it's just kind of stupid in my opinion you know both on a doctrinal level and in terms of the way we think about it like it's nice to award me some money because I've been upset about my animal suffering but realistically what I'm mostly upset about is the fact that my animal is suffering and that's really to me the quantifiable aspect of the equation yeah absolutely so let's just talk about a couple of these cases we'll throw some names out there in case anyone's listening to this and wants to know more but a couple in ontario 2006 so it's, it's this, this idea has been around for a little while but there's ferguson and birchmount boarding kennels and that's a situation where a dog escaped from a kennel due to the kennel's negligence and the owner ended up being awarded around $2,500 for the, the, the entire damage award was about 2500 bucks, And of that, $1,000 or so was for the replacement value of the dog, it seems, but 1500 was for the pain and suffering that the owner endured at the loss of their beloved companion. And the owner presented evidence Which is evidence like nothing that, to begin with, let me say. It's oh, I know, it's a joke. $1,500 yeah. compared to the, the, you know, the loss of, of your best friend? <laughs> no thanks. Yeah. Uh, but the the owner was able to show that she suffered insomnia and she had a special relationship with the dog and, and some other factors like that. And it's kind of mm. like, well, you really need to prove that you've got a special relationship with this animal that you share your life with. Yeah, I mean, it's again, that's the way it's gone. And even those, these are what we call the good cases. And and they're fairly old. They're, they're dated cases. But at the end of the day, they're not particularly uh, um, encouraging about the way in which that they happen to be the most encouraging, but they're not particularly encouraging about where the future is going in this area. Yeah. And then the second case is Nelson uh, or 
I think I'm butchering the first name. I don't think it's Nelson. I think it's something close to that. And Murgaski, 2006, again. And this is a case where one dog attacked another dog. Uh, the owner suffered some injuries, too. The owner ended up being awarded $1,750 for the pain and suffering of the dog, as well as veterinary costs and her own hospital costs. I think she got her parking paid for the hospital when she had to go get her hand tended to, which had been bitten. So again, $1,750. I, I don't think that the dog died in this case, but still, I, I, I the idea that... Yeah, yeah. The idea that you know, your dog is suffering because of somebody else's negligence, and and seventeen fifty is for your own pain and suffering, again, just doesn't really fit with what we think should happen, and 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 where the status of animals should be going. Let me add two particular points that I find frustrating about this. Well, one that I find frustrating, and one that I find encouraging. It just hasn't come to Canada. The the frustrating part is one of the things that happens is when your vet breaches a standard of care, one of the things that you can do, imagine your lawyer breaches a standard of care, right? You can go to the law society and you can complain about the way they treated you. And in some cases, you can apply for compensation, right, from the lawyer's insurer directly for the breach of standards against you. In, 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 with vets, you can go complain to the Veterinary Medical Association, and in certain circumstances, the vet will be sanctioned. Right. And with enough sanctions, that vet might be disbarred, right, from practicing in the province. But what's amazing about these vet standard situations is they have no power to order any remedies aside from the actual vet. So they can find all day that your vet was negligence and breached the conduct standard and all that stuff. And that might ultimately be useful to you if you decide to go sue in court. But they have no power to order financial remedies. Apparently, vets are, you know, not well off enough to have their own veterinary insurance fund that can compensate people who have been badly treated by vets. So it's like, you know, it's great to go complain, but it's completely useless to you in terms of actually obtaining remedies that might compensate you for the loss that you and your pet have suffered, even if that, that loss would be useful to make your dog or cat's life better in the future. And let me talk about the encouraging point. What I'd really like to see, to be honest, what's happened in certain U.S. states, at least two that I'm aware of, is that these U.S. states have put in statutes because that's the way you fix this like anything else the common law says that animals are property but the legislature is supreme they can change this at any time and there are a couple of uh, uh, um, states in the u.s that have essentially said we are going to recognize the values of animals because we, we think they go beyond uh, the property status. And they've put in values, uh, as I recall, I haven't looked at this in a while, but I believe of up to $25,000. And I think that's really significant in a number of ways. We've been talking about this in terms of animals and owners and the way in which owners you know, have rights or should be compensated in some way. And that's all well and good. But I really look at this in the larger sense. What bothers me most about these vet negligence cases is what it says about animals in our society. It's more the message that it's communicating to everybody is that animals are valueless. We can do with them what we want. The vets can do any kind of mistake that they want and never be held liable because at the end of the day, they're not worth anything. And I think that message is terrible. And I think the message being conveyed by the U.S. states that have changed that is really inspiring. And I think it's the kind of thing that could filter through to a lot of different areas of our law if we simply recognize that these animals are worth something. They're worth more than the amount it costs to produce them. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good future direction for this. We are seeing this idea of value creeping into judgments in all areas. And it's time for the legislatures to start recognizing this, too. If judges are uh, too slow to adopt this through the common law, the, the, the remedy is go to the legislatures. So we'll see what happens in Canada. I do believe, Camille, that this is one of my hobby horses. 
<laughs> the idea that small things in one area can affect things in other areas. And I do think that's true. I think this is one of the areas in which you make small little changes and those can have impact on the law at large. And we've seen that across the board. Whenever we have a case, we cite, you know, one word from a criminal case and the next one from a family custody case. And we're trying to cobble together for all the judges the idea that our thinking about animals has changed. So God, I would love it if one legislature actually brought forward legislation to say, in these cases, you need to be able to seek remedies. It's important. I mean, it should be a pretty non-controversial issue. I'm sure the veterinarian lobby would be against it, but... Would fight it. They would, yeah. they would They'd fight say, it. say, well, the insurance costs will go up. Yeah, yeah, well, you know, too bad. They would fight it, but um, you would see broad public support for this. It's not something that would be opposed by any particular sector except for veterinarians. So I wouldn't be surprised if this had a realistic chance of passing. So call your MPP. Haha, I beat you too. Ah, <laughs> now you're on my my hobby horse. <laughs> <laughs> because this, let me be clear, going back to, what was it, episode one or two on federalism, this is clearly a provincial issue. Absolutely. This would need to happen province by province. So, Heroes and zeros. All right, it's time. I'm back. So it's time for everybody's favorite part of the show, heroes and zeros. Heroes and zeros. Heroes All and right. zeros. Heroes and zeros. Yes. I'm right. glad you're back for this because it just wasn't the same without you, Peter. No, it wasn't. I know Rebecca can't do my voice that way. So. No, <laughs> <laughs> All right. So our hero of this episode is the city of Montreal, as well as the Montreal SPCA for a horse retirement program. The city is planning to buy back horses from Kalesh drivers, so that that's horse wagon drivers, for a thousand dollars each after the uh, ban on on Kaleshes comes into place in Montreal at the end of 2019. So they're going to buy back those horses and let the Montreal SPCA find new horses for them. And I love this, Peter, because it's, I, you know, I don't love the idea of giving money to these Kalesh drivers who have ex profited from the exploitation of these horses for their entire careers. But I do love the idea that the city's making sure that these horses won't simply be sent to slaughter for profit when the industry goes out of business. Yeah, some people really get upset. I, I get less upset about that stuff than others. Um, I have advocated for long times that, like, if you have laws that allow animal exploiters to do stuff, you can't necessarily punish the people who take advantage of those laws and just continue to do what they've always been doing. And I just think that's the way our society works. I, I've talked about this in the context of farming, where I'm like, you know, we're ever going to move away in certain ways from some of this. There are going to be payouts. Like, that's just the way it is. Society is going to have to pay out uh, us certain changes and that's unfortunately the world we live in but I but I do think this is a great little idea I think it it solves and smooths over a pro program that needs to be ended without without any uh, fear of you know blow-ups or controversy and I agree it, it keeps the animals alive and I think it's a wonderful work by both the city of Montreal my hometown I should point out and the Montreal SPCA kudos to those guys good stuff well Camille oh boy we have a zero, and it's 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 kind of rare that one of us features in the story involving the zero, but Camille managed to, to make her way in. Our zero is everybody's favorite columnist, the Toronto Star's own Heather Malik. Camille, Heather please enlighten Malik. us. What did Heather oh do my this God. week? I don't even know. I, I'm, my mind is just honestly still kind of blown by this one, but Heather Malik not known for writing the most coherent of columns, has probably hit a new low. So the column is entitled, I Stabbed a Toronto Raccoon. 
And she goes on to describe how she was writing a column one day at home and she hears something in her backyard. She goes out and there's a raccoon. She says the raccoon was crazed and charged at her. Uh, she thinks maybe the raccoon was trying to have sex with her. She actually said that in the column like twice. <laughs> and she stabbed the raccoon, Peter, she writes. She said she's a, that she stabbed the raccoon with a dinner fork. Yeah, this reminds me. This reminds me, Camille, of that story we did a couple months back. We had a zero about the the vegan who was feeling, you know, deeply bothered by all the other things people were doing to her. I can't remember. And and I think what I said then applies to Heather Malik now. The hard part to decide is whether, you know, what's more reprehensible the the terrible writing in this column, which is really even by Malik's own standards, is is particularly terrible, or the idea she's putting forth because it's a tough battle. Ah, uh, yeah, it really is. It really is a difficult choice to make. Uh, we'll link to the column, so go. I, I guess go give it a read. I'm kind of reticent to give them any more traffic on this, to be honest. And I was gonna say, Camille, I'm kind of disappointed at you. And here we are doing it even more. We're highlighting her zeroness, and we're we're getting more people to read her column, which is just terrible because it's a terrible column. Don't read it. Don't just take uh, our word yeah, for it. It's terrible. Yeah, just just take our word for it. But what you know, obviously, this is problematic. She's talking about abusing an animal in the pages of the Toronto Star, and somehow editors let that be published, and she somehow has the freedom to be able to do that. Like, I am a huge fan of media freedom and columnist ability to write about things that they care about. But this isn't journalism. This isn't news. This is just her weird rant about stabbing a raccoon and committing criminal animal cruelty. So I should Peter, point I, out a raccoon I, that she confronted that didn't 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 require her. This wasn't like self-defense from the raccoon. This was like if you read the column, it's like she's confronting this raccoon for no reason. She's putting herself yeah. in and then she decides to stab it. It's pretty ridiculous. She inserts herself into the situation and she says the raccoon like kind of came at her. Well, just go back inside. Like, don't stand there. Just go back inside. So yeah. I tweeted about this because it was so offensive to me. And I said that I would be filing a complaint with the public editor of the Toronto Star and also uh, reporting it to the Toronto police, which I subsequently did. Um, I have to say it wasn't a great experience. The police put me on hold. And then the dispatcher said that she had spoken with like two officers and they both said that the information wasn't valid and that I had to first contact the OSPCA. And I was like, well, what do you mean by valid? And they're like, she didn't know what that meant because it doesn't mean anything because that's not a legal term. So they refused like to it. conduct any sort of investigation. Um, OSPCA wasn't investigating this either. I contacted the Ministry of Natural Resources, which is what the OSPCA suggested, and they said they would get back to me and didn't. So I'm going to stay on this. I'll keep you guys posted if anything comes up. But um, apparently Canada Land discussed this on their podcast too recently, which is great. That's a, a Canadian media criticism podcast. Hmm. So it's not gone unnoticed that she wrote this like utterly uh, bananas column that involves criminal animal cruelty. And um, I hope that people will take the time to write to the Toronto Star's public editor, Kathy English. It's public ed at the star.ca and express your outrage tell her that you don't think it's acceptable that they promote animal cruelty in the columns of their paper absolutely well thank you very much camille i for bringing that to our attention i would have ignored uh, her article had you not brought it to my attention but i did go and read it so thank you very much that was fun that was another episode of heroes and zeros and that brings us to the end of our show camille we made it through we made it back i got back from africa we did a show i'm delighted and 
as we did at the beginning of the show, let me highlight that our next show will be a special one. We'll be live and in person together, and I'm looking forward to it. Should be good fun. Yeah, I don't know what we're going to talk about, but if you guys have suggestions, feel free to send them along. And also feel free to go leave us a review for the podcast. Reviews are great because they really help the show reach more people. And uh, I just want to read you a recent review from uh, one listener named Jess who says, quote, best podcast. Thanks, Jess. She says, this is an amazing podcast. Hosts Camille and Peter are so knowledgeable, kind, and funny. That's really nice of her to say, Peter. I don't know how kind I am, Camille, but I'm definitely funny. uh, You're definitely funny. She says, they discuss important and challenging issues in law and advocacy in a way that is accessible to both the legal community and the general public. Thank you, Pa and Order, for such great listening and learning. That's really kind of you, Jess. Thank you. If you are listening and you want to make our day, please go leave us a nice review like Jess did. It would mean a lot. It would mean a lot. Thank you so much. All right. Well, thanks, everybody. What a great show that was. I had good fun doing it. Good catching up with you, Camille. And I guess we'll see you next time on the next Pawn Order. We'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in today. We'd love to ask you to subscribe to the Pawn Order podcast using Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or your other favorite podcatcher. Also, please leave a rating because it helps more people find the show. And if you can, please tell other listeners to share the podcast so more people can hear us. You can also consider supporting us on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash order if you like what you hear. You can find me on Twitter at, at Peter Sankoff or at my website, petersankoff.com. And you can find me on Twitter at, at Camille Labchuk, that's L-A-B-C-H-U-K. And we always enjoy Twitter conversations about the show or any other animal law or political topics. And finally, we'd like to thank our producer, Shannon Milling. See you next time on Pawn Order.